Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. We are your hosts, James and Anthony. This episode will be on The Fifth Element. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. James and I are going to be talking about one of our favorite films growing up as kids, the sci-fi classic, The Fifth Element. This was directed by Luc Besson. Written by Luke Pisson and Robert Mark Kamen. Came out in 1997. Oof. Budget of $93 million. It grossed $263 million worldwide. In a colorful future, a cab driver unwittingly becomes the central figure in the search for a legendary cosmic weapon to keep evil in Mr. Zorg at bay. And growing up, I thought this was the coolest yeah. freaking movie. This is one of my favorite movies as a kid. I've ever yeah. seen. It was always on TV a lot when we were younger, and we actually dressed up for the role. We've we've decorated the entire set for Spooky Season, so go watch on YouTube or on Spotify if you want to check it out. But I'm I'm dressed up as Lilu. Anthony's dressed <laughs> you up. You look great with that Thanks. wig. I, I'm not going to lie. I pull it off. <laughs> I pull the long orange hair off. <laughs> you look like mom. I didn't realize I would, but man, I kind of like it. Yeah, and I did uh, just the orange tank top that Corbin wears. Corbin Dallas! <laughs> Which was also like, I never noticed it as a kid, but as you watch it as an adult, you see orange connects the two characters. Yeah, I haven't yeah. seen this movie in like 15 years. Yeah. Then obviously the connection of what is the fifth element, Lilu being the fifth element, but does she need love to unlock the power of the fifth element to stop evil? But then you see immediately when they meet, like you said, that she's got the orange hair yeah. and he's got the orange tank top on. Yeah, it's very interesting. You never noticed that as a kid. It's just like, seems like a little over, a little too more mature of a metaphor for like a it's, eight-year-old. It's nice symbolism yeah. that yeah, you, yeah. you appreciate when you're older. Absolutely. You you also freaked out when we watched it the other night because Bilbo Baggins is in it. I know, Ian <laughs> Holm. I'm like, it's Bilbo! So Bilbo play, <laughs> he plays... <laughs> Father Cornelius and I'm like I'm like who is this guy? Who is <laughs> you, this how guy? long were you trying to figure it out? A minute. You know uh, sometimes you're just like yeah, yeah. Why, why do I know that? He's got face? the goatee and short hair. Yeah, he, he he's younger. Look, he when he looks very unlike a hobbit. He, yeah, yeah, so he's, he's only well, he's five years younger from when they. But shot. he looks like he put on a little weight for Bilbo. They well, they yeah. aged him pretty well for yeah. the Lord of the Rings practically. Mm-hmm. And then the hair, the wig helps. So he looks yeah. older. Than the sh- but I was just like blown away. I couldn't believe it was Bilbo. <laughs> we Baggins. were watching it and then you were like, Oh my God, it's Bilbo! <laughs> <laughs> It's great. <laughs> but this is just a highly original sci-fi film that came from Lupison's uh, ideas. Of He started writing this story and this idea when he was in high school, and then eventually saw it come to fruition as a filmmaker. And Well, after you make Leon the Professional, then he had green light to do basically anything because that was very successful in Europe. And this is a Europe production. It's not an American production. So the budget is actually pretty pretty modest for a big sci-fi movie. Hollywood-wise, it's like pretty standard, but in Europe— in France, it was like the biggest production of its time. It actually was at the time the oh, nice. largest production uh, budget-wise outside of Hollywood. Wow! But now that's obviously been topped. Yeah, yeah. but this is like European films. They've never been given huge budgets because there's less people there, less movie theaters there. Now nowadays, they're they have they have bigger film communities. But still, to this day, like there are a lot of parts of Europe where there aren't movie theaters everywhere, and not it's not like America. So even to this day. They have a smaller film audience compared to the American audience. And international film distribution in America is nothing compared to, like, if a Fast and Furious movie came out in America. <laughs> it's 5,000 Fur- screens. Yeah, fi- yeah, Fast and Furious comes out. You're seeing Dwayne jo- Dwayne's face on Everywhere. so many movie theater screens. Yeah. But if, like, even when Parasite came out, that got a pretty decent release in America. It still wasn't a but wide it w- it release. But it started small. It yeah. started with only a few theaters. And still, at its max, it probably wasn't. It was only at, like, half the theaters yeah, in America. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But, like, this was still just really unheard of for such a large production outside of Hollywood. I love this movie because it's so weird in a good way. It's so strange in a good way. And it, it basically – it's like if – I think Basone was like, I love Star Wars and I love Blade Runner, but I want to just do something completely different and show, like, a different facet to this genre of of this, like, lo, lo-fi tech futuristic. It's not, like, clean and stuff, but, like – like Star Wars and Blade Runner were approach, it was more realistic, grounded, futuristic technology. Used and future. Used future. Thank you. That's that term that they used for Star Wars. But the same thing with Blade Runner. But he also injected adult humor into it. Like, you have, like, uh, engineers working on helping a, a spaceship lift off, and, and they're, like, smoking a, a blunt while they're, like, <laughs> getting it ready for takeoff. It's like, that's not that you would see in a Star Wars movie, but, like, Basone was like, let's inject, like, some real-world humor and adult um, ideas and themes into this world that I'm making. And he's 
actually done a lot of sci-fi films. I mean, he did Lucy, which was a pretty mm-hmm. that's his most successful movie sci-fi film. He also did Valerian, was a recent one that he did right, the yeah. one with um Carol, Carol Delvin and Dane Dehan, which was actually Valerian in that off that cartoonist's other big work. I can't remember uh, what it's called, but it was <laughs> if you watch if you look at this guy's animations, it's Star Wars. It's crazy, <laughs> and it was in the six. It was in the seventy one and seventy two, so it was before Star Wars coming out. But George Lucas even owned uh, in a behind the scenes footage of him doing an interview for Star Wars. You can see these graphic, these comic books in his bookshelf, and like when you, there are a lot of illustrations where you're like, "Wow, that's literally Star Wars." So the world that uh, Busson was obsessed with, that Lucas was obsessed with as well. So you can see the similarities and. The f- in the films they made. Like I said, he wrote this idea in the original screenplay for The Fifth Element when he was in high school. Now, Luc Besson made the hero of The Fifth Element a taxi driver because his own father worked a second job as a taxi driver. He did it to support Luke going to art school, so Luke almost always has taxi drivers in all of his movies to honor his father. Oh, how sweet. Which is really sweet, and that's, yeah. you know, it's really endearing. And it kind of gives the everyman quality to Corbin Dallas, even though we also learned that he is one of the most <laughs> super decorated uh, soldiers in the current, was it, the American, the Federation Yeah, the of document Earth. of vehicles that he needs to know how to use for this mission is, it reaches the floor. It's not that he needs to know how to yeah. use, that's all of that his. That he knows, yeah. yeah that's all Re- of his yeah. credentials, that he know, the, op- the weapons and operational expertise for, for vehicles and stuff like that. But so. if you need to play a badass everyman, who are you going to get? Bruce, Bruce Willis. Willis. But, you know, he's just the classic, like, I can do anything. No one can stop me. I'm the greatest shot in the world. I'm, I'm unstoppable. It's fun. It plays well. Yeah. It is what it is, but, you know, <laughs> it's pretty fun to watch. Yeah, it's with Bruce this Willis. Bruce Willis. Yeah. And this is, like, mid-big resurgence for Bruce Willis in the mid to late 90s after he had made that bad movie Hudson Hawk and a couple of other stinkers after Die Hard. The masterpiece Hudson Hawk. <laughs> where, where people were like, he's really hard to work with. He's in Pulp Fiction in 94. They need, like, 12 monkeys and stuff like that. And then... This put him, I think, even more on the map of being like an international superstar since the Die Hard era when he lost kind of his fame and reputation in Hollywood. And now audiences want to love him even more. And this is like such a big international hit. He hadn't done sci-fi before this that I can think of. Because I don't think so. he did 12 Monkeys after. No, no 12 Monkeys 1995. 95, so yeah. before this. All right. Well, big, huge space sci-fi he had never done. Because um, 12 Monkeys is a sci-fi movie. It doesn't have like the huge epic size of a movie like this and you know, actors like Harrison Ford were just on top of that genre really well. So I think that he might have always been looking for something like a Star Wars to do. Um, maybe he really enjoyed those films. And I'm, I'm sure he really liked Luc Besson's other great film, Leon the Professional, which is why he signed on to do this film. Because Besson said that he met with Bruce Willis, gave him the script, and then two hours later... Bruce Willis agreed to star in the film, so he must have loved the script and also to get that the paycheck. Yeah, the paycheck. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, how many zeros? <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is your biggest production. Okay, oh, biggest production. I like that. <laughs> but he must have liked Leon the Professional to get that meeting with Bosan. I love the aesthetic of this movie, too. Like you said, use future, but also it's like very bright, kind of cheerful There's no future. night. It's not, yeah, n- not really. It's yeah. very few yeah. shots of nighttime. I, I can't, actually, I can't even think of any. Maybe. Just um, because well, on the, on the when on they the, hide the climax, when they hide in the mist, that mm-hmm. was just it. But the entire, entire chase is during the daytime. The whole tell the climax yeah. again with the explosion. That's in space. Yeah, but it's you don't right. Even, yeah, there's no time of day in space. Yeah, technically it is always daylight. <laughs> it's always if there's it's a always, sun. If there's a sun just, nearby, ex- it's just time. Yeah, I wonder. It, but it, there's no daylight or, or or there's no night or day in space. Well, if you're if your sun's pouring on you, then it's daytime. Yeah, but if you're in space, that sun's just always pouring on you. Yeah, exactly. So it's just like never ends. It's just no time at all. Yeah. There's, anyway. no, there's no term for it. <laughs> you just exist. But everything is brightly lit. All the action scenes are, are well exposed. There's no darkness. There's no, like, high contrasty, super stylized stuff. It's, like, it's kind of lit like a comedy in a lot of ways. And, and it's a really funny yeah. movie, but Luc Besson demanded that most of the action shots in the movie take place in broad daylight as he was reportedly tired of the dark spaceship corridors and dimly lit planets common in, sp- in science fiction movies and wanted a brighter and more cheerful, crazy look as opposed to gloomy, realistic one. Crazy is what this movie is. It is. It, <laughs> it is also crazy. feels like very Doctor Who-ish, especially the opening scene. It's a great opening when the uh, the aliens arrive at the temple in Egypt, and we learn basically the backstory of what's going on. And that first priest from 300 years ago learns that evil is coming. We don't really know what the evil is yet. But the, the, the robotic alien suits are very, like, they look like Doctor Who characters. Yeah. They, I love are, it. Those are called Mondashawans. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I'm like, sorry I didn't get the lore. Mondo Shawins. Mondo right. Shawins. Those are the big, like, 
penguin walking robot suits that Lilu's with duck faces was in before before she was artificially cloned into a human. Uh, but we'll get into that in a little bit. Do you, should we just go over the alien races in this movie? Yeah, if you want. So the Mondashawans are a race of aliens that are friendly to humans. I know you love reading lists. <laughs> Standing slightly taller than a human, the Mondashawans are quasi-biblical beings that serve as the caretakers of both the four elemental stones, water, earth, fire, air, and guardians of the fifth element. Although little is known of their homeworld or race, it can be assumed is some distance from Earth. <laughs> I'm sure more than some distance. <laughs> remaining <laughs> the spit out his water. Remaining relatively secluded from other races. Little is known of what the Mondashawan actually look like as they are only seen wearing an impenetrable gold metallic armor. And now, obviously, Lilu was reconstructed because of from the hand that was stuck inside the wall. The human form was just made by the humans. That's not what the Mondashawan look, Mondashawan look like. This, so I, that is still confusing to me. I thought that, that they're just like humanoids inside these Same. suits, so, so they're they, not. They used her DNA to clone – they used Lilu's DNA to clone her into a human form. Okay. So, so, to they make, so she's still the perfect being. She's still the fifth element. Just like a human version of the perfect being? Exactly, basically. Uh-huh. So she doesn't actually look like that inside the suits. Because, I mean, that is kind of confusing because when she the clone is done, she's still got the glove on. Same. That's why I looked it up because I was I was confused at the same time when I was doing research on the alien races in this movie. And, and I was wondering, are they aliens? Is she an alien? Why do they have these giant suits that they waddle yeah. in like penguins? But yeah, so that's just the human form that they turn her into. So she's really like a giant waddling penguin. We don't know. No, one, little is known. Like I said, of what they look like inside. At some point in ancient history, the Mondashawan visited the humans before time was time. I didn't realize humans were around by then. A succession of priests were established to protect the fifth element in the chamber in Egypt. Evil attempted to destroy the world 5,000 years prior to the events of the fifth element, possibly multiple times, and perhaps even causing the moon to form around the earth. Evil dies tonight. Evil dies tonight. <laughs> now the divine language that Lilu speaks, the word Mondashawan, translates to guardians. Little is known of what Mondashawan actually look like as they are seen wearing an impenetrable, I already said that, metallic armor, blah, blah, blah. Broken record over here. Now let's get to the Mangalores. Remember, you know who the Mangalores <laughs> yeah, are? Yeah, the, the big ugly dudes. Yeah, the big ugly, hey man. Someone thinks they're beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> the Mangalores are a scattered warrior race that are considered savage brutes by other races. These are the dudes, the big brute guys that Zorg is selling the guns to and seem to be like a main antagonist in the in the shows, in the movie as well. It's a great show. Prior to the events of the film, the Mangalores were involved in a conflict with humanity in which humanity emerged victorious. Their empire dissolved due to political infighting and the United Earth government forced them to relocate to barren star systems. In 2263, they are hired by Zorg to help the great evil. Uh, only male Mangalores are shown in the movie, though they are shown to be able to take the form of women just as easily as men. They are shapeshifters, and they have this ability to do that with their bodies, which is useful for means of infiltration, though technology exists that can pierce the disguise, as shown when a pair of Mangalores try to disguise themselves or trying to get onto the flight bound for Floston Paradise. So like Mystique. Kind of, yeah. Also, well, who else we got here? The Great Evil. I have that somewhere else. So the, the Great Evil in this movie, which is basically kind of, it seems to be like a star or some energy. It is the it is. ultimate evil. It's an ancient cosmic force that has, for thousands of years, tried to destroy Earth and all planets that contain life. After its emergence through a celestial alignment of three planets and one sun, which happens every 5,000 years, but each time has been thwarted by the fifth element. In the 23rd century, it approaches planet Earth upon finding out that the five elements are no longer in place to stop it. <laughs> the evil then tried to get the, <laughs> the four elemental stones via grunts, but they failed to get them as the stones were handed to another. After a few failures, the ultimate evil swallowed several satellites and used them to tell its follower, Jean-Baptiste Zorg, CEO of Zorg Industries, that it would be arriving soon. By the end of the film, the evil is once again thwarted by the power of the fifth element, Lilu, killing it forever and its body becoming a second moon for Earth. Now we got two moons. So it gobbles up those satellites in order to start communicating with Zorg and everybody via telecommunications. I uh, I love the connection with Zorg because if you look at the production design and cinematography of the film, Zorg, Gary Oldman, in the background, he's always framed by circles in the actual architecture of the sets. And so... It'll be like window frames, door frames, hallways, and they're always circle-shaped. And that relates to the great evil, which is the sphere 
uh, always connected to him and always like in the back of his head. And ironically, to contrast Zorg, Bruce Willis's character, Corbin Dallas, he's oftentimes uh, contradictorily framed by squares and rectangles. And so it's a great contrast for both the characters with the production design. Little things like that really make all the difference when you watch it on repeat viewings. Corbin Dallas! Corbin Dallas! Who is Zorg? Zor- he is the head of a major corporation, Zorg, and the inventor <laughs> Zorg Industries, and the inventor of various weapons and devices, who is secretly working for the great evil, and is willing to use any means to reach his goals. I love Gary Oldman in this movie just because he just went for it. And I love his accent. It's like it's like southern Louisiana, but also space at the same time. Like, I don't know what he's going for, but he seems to. It looks like he invented it himself. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, Gary Oldman, for his performance, he used two characters as inspiration. There was a, first, there was, it was a real-life man who was running for president at the time. I can't remember his name, but he had like a southern accent and drawl. And then he also used Bugs Bunny as inspiration really? for his inspiration. So Bugs Bunny helped inspire Gary Oldman's character Zork. And Gary Oldman actually hates the movie. He said he's only seen it once and he can't stand it. But he agreed to do the film because he and Basson worked together, obviously, for Leon the Professional. And after that, uh, d- Gary Oldman actually directed it and wrote a film in, like, 96. 97, called nin- nil, nil, my, nil by Mouth. Nil by Mouth. And Basson actually helped finance the film. So as a way to... Return the favor. Gary Oldman agreed to star in this film, even though he didn't even read the script. But it, I think it, it looks like he had a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, he, uh, he was asked in 2011 if he liked the movie um, Fifth Element. He said, "Oh no, I can't bear it. It was me singing for my supper because Luke had come in and partly financed my film. So basically, he's just like, yeah, I'm doing a favor for a friend. Yeah, <laughs> what I just the most said. ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, well, I was adding some more context. <laughs> the more context, the better. Do you want to fight? <laughs> Oh, I'll fight you. <laughs> <laughs> Who else we got in this movie? So we got Corbin Dallas. We got Mila. Mila Jovovich. Yeah, well, I'm talking about Corbin Dallas okay. now. All right. Jeez Louise, man. Can I talk about Corbin Dallas, <laughs> played by Bruce Willis, who, as we find out, is a taxi driver who is short on credits because he keeps getting into probably accidents and whatnot he's not very good at being a taxi driver he's only been doing it for six months because he quits the federation and special forces he is the most decorated officer probably especially of his of his platoon or his company and he's basically recruited simultaneously by the federation of earth governments yeah as well as the priest temporarily to try to bring lilu to the fifth element to to find the stones even though the obviously the priest is trying to take his place on that that ship, yeah, I wouldn't say the the priest recruit them cr- recruit oh, yeah, him, but right, he yeah. he basically makes mo- both missions into his mission, yeah, in a way. You know what's really interesting about this movie? What it's so rare that this happens, where in the Fifth Element, the hero and the antagonist never meet. You're right. Protagonist antagonist don't meet. Hero villain do not meet in the Fifth Element. It's very rare for that to happen. Yeah, th- not at all. It's the only interactions between the trio between Lilu, Corbin, and Zorg are Zorg and Lilu in the third act of the in film the, in the hotel room. That's it. Yeah. Corbin Dallas never is in the same room or anything as Zorg. I guess it would have. I guess it would be nice to have a scene with them. It's almost like they don't even know each other exists. Exist, yeah, they they don't even talk about each other mm-hmm. because the the plot's really like in terms. It's actually a pretty decent plot where there's a lot of different connected tissue to it in different storylines and plot lines and characters. But it's really interesting to have a, a major movie, a major action film, sci-fi film, where hero and villain don't meet. And, yeah, both heroes and villain, because even when Lilu does meet Zorg, they don't even talk. He just uh, shoots at her. She throws the box, and he shoots at her. I think it's a nice change of pace. It is nice, but, I mean, it, it would have been cool to see them interact. with, Like, the persona- just having the personalities go off each that other. That would be interesting. Yeah, because Gary and Bruce in a scene together, that would be great. That would be that great. Would have been, that, I think, I mean, I love the movie, but that, that sounds like a missed opportunity. Now, let's get to Lilu, played by Mila, jo- Mila Jovovich. Who you're dressed up as. Mila Jovovich. I always say the name wrong. Mila Jovovich. Jovovich. She's Jovovich. Ukrainian. Yeah. 
Um, she was reconstructed in a lab, basically a clone of what she used to be after she was the she was the being that was inside the suit that got trapped inside the pyramid. And she stuck her finger through the wall with the key for the priest to take and crush her hand. And the humans of the future were able to use that hand to make a clone reconstruction, human form reconstruction of what the being was. She's a supreme being. She is. Oh, I'm confused. With she's the one with the key. That's her. I thought the hand got crushed though. So exactly. Then they reconstructed. So, mm -hmm. so they reconstruct her from the hand that was left at the pyramid. Uh -huh. She's the fifth element. That's why she's there yeah. at the pyramid three hundred in nineteen fourteen in Egypt uh -huh. with them because she's the fifth element. Ew! I thought I. I guess I just figured she was on one of the ships that got attacked. She on that is big like ship. the ultimate perfect being of the Mondashawan race. Oh yeah, I understand that. I'm just. I was. I just assumed that she was probably on that huge ship that got blown up. That's then how, how I assumed. But then how would the humans have gotten her hand? Um, I guess because well, if you, well, then why? <laughs> there's a couple of loopholes in this movie. Why is that big big alien never seen again? Even though his body got her body got like trapped in the temple because no one knows how to open it. Yeah, well, until the end. Well, when yeah, they get inside. Yeah, they get not inside. There. I assume that. I guess. I mean, I guess that. Makes sense, yeah. Her hand gets cut off. Uh-huh. But doesn't it get smushed? Part of it's sticking out. Just like, I guess, yeah. Okay, all right. All right. Yeah, it fits. All right, it fits. I, I never like put a, that together. It's like a shoe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess like, where do you think they got the hand from? From the crash site. That's how I assumed. What crash site? The one that crashed into the moon? Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. They'll, yeah. that's, they're all dead. Okay. <laughs> when the Mangalorans chased down the Manchowan. Well, because they – well, no, because – so that first thing happened so, – no, I think I'm right. I think I'm right. Did you read that online, that specifically about the hand? I'm just, I just watched the movie. Okay, so the, the temple hand crushing, that happened 300 years ago, but the Federation officers, the, that, like, com that general says they found a hand at the crash site, the only survivor of the crash is what they Did say. Did they say that? Yeah. So her, the hand came from that giant ship because she's – I think that, that first alien dude – was just like a high priest or a commander with the key. With the key, okay. That was just like a person, like not a person, but like one of like the leaders. <laughs> just it wasn't Lilu. It was just Steve. <laughs> <laughs> it was Steve the the whatever. Okay, okay, okay. And then Lilu was on the big ship because three hundred years later, when the evil's coming, the what are the Mangalorians? Mangalorians were like forgot the name. Mangalorians <laughs> like we gotta get back to Earth. We gotta get we gotta okay. rescue these dudes. Okay. And Lilu was on that ship. Okay. Because they say this is the only scavenged like survivor from the crash. Okay. The crash Thank you on the for moon. clearing that up for me and the audience. No problem, man. You're right. There's a bit of a confusing. That's why I could pay the big bucks. <laughs> okay. So either I was, like so confused, like what? The head got crushed. I thought that was And the that head. hand, only like a few fingers are not okay, crushed. Okay. You're yeah. right, you're right. Anyways <laughs> Fortunately that hand survived. There so the thing about the movie, I love it, but it is it can be a little confusing at times. It's a couple it's, of plot holes. I mean, when but, you're making a giant original yeah. sci-fi, but it's still awesome. It's gonna happen. It's still awesome. Yeah. So oh. the they use that hand from the crash. So actually, that makes more sense <laughs> to reconstruct Lilu, yes. this being into a human form clone. Correct. Okay. We got it. We got this. We're good. Sorry, We're good at our jobs. Sorry, everybody. We figured it out. This is why we, there's two of us on the show. If it was just me, I'd be sending a lot of misinformation your way. <laughs> Fake news. Now, Lilu, her original version lived among the Mandashawan, an extraterrestrial race dedicated to saving Earth from the great evil that appears once every 5,000 years. I feel like if this guy came sooner, he might be able to take over the universe. Yeah, he's like, uh, throw them off at least. 5,000 years. Every 4,000 years? What are you, biding your time? No one would be time? ready. What were you doing? Biding your time. <laughs> Detective! <laughs> Waiting to spring your trap. Now, when filming began, the production decided to dye Mila Jovovich's hair from its natural brown color to her character's signature orange color. However, due to the fact that her hair had to be re-dyed regularly to maintain the bright color, Mila's hair became too damaged and broken to withstand the dye. Eventually, a wig was created to match color and style of Lilu's hair and was used for the remainder of the production. And Mila's great. I think she's a really underrated actor, and she's excellent in this film. It's a very physical performance, and also speaking like a fake language, she really pulls it off. Very infectious personality, very charming. And she's had a, a really successful career. She started out as a supermodel. She was uh, like recruited as a model when she was like 13, 14, and she was in high fashion for all of her teenage years and then she went into acting but she was working with like the biggest brands and photographers and fashion outlets to, as a model for 
while she was like 16, 17, 18, which is wild. But uh, only a few models have been able to make the transition into being a successful actor. Charlize Theron is another one. Uh, not just to be in movies, but like there's plenty of models who have been in movies, but to be a very good actor after starting out as a model. Still kind of very few have been able to pull that off, and she's one of them. She's one of the better ones too. And speaking of being a model working with brands, there's that great shot where she puts on like that Chanel makeup uh, eye mask. It oh, just, yeah. And it quickly puts makeup on her in like a second. She's actually worked for Chanel too, at this, mm-hmm. which is really funny and interesting. Well, fashion's really infused in this film in a great way. Jean-Paul Gaultier did the costume designs. Where did you get that overnight bag? Jean-Paul, Jean-Paul Gaultier. Gaultier. <laughs> <laughs> and I like the costuming in this film because it's so different from any other sci-fi film we've seen before it was infused with like just a lot of fun energy colors uh it's very sexy clothing for for a movie this is why it's definitely not hollywood i don't think a big budget studio picture would let like the stewardess be dressed in basically like so scantily clad (laughs) but basson and it's europe they have different views of sex and sexuality so they're more comfortable with stuff like that different cultures so you can see i like how that the European culture is infused into everything in the film, including the style of the costumes. I really like the aesthetic and style and technology of this distant future. It's very dirty and gritty, like we talk about used future, and it clearly the Earth is like crazily overpopulated. But I like how it's not like an issue. It's not like a a big health it's risk. Not like Blade Runner, yeah. It's just everyone's got these tiny apartments, and Corbin's apartment, like it has, it's a small space. He's got a bed that goes underneath the floor. Basically New York City. He's got a, he's got a shower underneath the – he's got a fridge underneath the shower. That's New York City or Hong Kong. He's got like a – you get a little cubby. Still like that right yeah. now, yeah. <laughs> yeah, New York City, this would, this would be a $10,000 apartment <laughs> in like Upper West Side. <laughs> he's got the bed that rolls out, the, the fridge underneath the shower, which is really funny. And just things like that to make it seem like it's a, use, it's a future, but – Everything's okay. Yeah, it's not like it's been an apocalypse. Yeah. And he has the the delivery food guy who's like makes the noodles outside his window. And it's stuff not dystopian. Like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not dystopian. And but I like how because you don't realize it at first until like the chase happens and you and then they go down as like keep going further lower 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 to the ground and then we're in like the mist area which is like the mist area is the cloudy area is probably like what we see today in terms of like how high skyscrapers go but like where corbin lives and all the other skies they they go way up into the atmosphere these huge buildings we don't realize how tall they are until that chase i really like that element where like to deal with the overpopulation they just built buildings incredibly tall keep going up yeah keep where it up, higher started higher. in ancient rome they started yeah. building apartment buildings there in the insulae because they had so <laughs> many people they had to go build up instead and you can see there's, they've been building up and up and up because of the yeah. overpopulation on the planet. Yeah. And all this, the fog in the bottom of the, of the, on the surface. And they also pulled off the flying cars. Looks it, fine it to looks, me. It looks like it's, looks fine. <laughs> looks like it's like pretty, sta- like that's how it would feel like. I, uh, although I feel like if, like, it'd be impossible not to get in a car accident. That, it, there, I don't think it will ever happen. It's too dangerous. There, there would never, there's no it way would never flying happen. cars could work. Because you crash and then you're like crashing into a building. Then you just keep falling and falling. And more cars. And in this movie, there's layers and layers of traffic from, from altitude changes. And so that could be like thousands of cars and people dying just from one crash. Just from a fender bender. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's never going to happen, but it looks cool. It's like, oh, okay, I believe it's this. It's fun. And then I love how the spaceship, it's just like basically what our, our shuttles look like yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, it's great. <laughs> but uh, So in Blade Runner, I think it makes the most sense where only people like Blade Runners have flying cars. Mm-hmm. It's not everyone has a flying car. So that in that world, I think that it makes a little bit more sense. A little more yeah, more, uh, more realistic. Like an authority, like they have to use the car to do their this job. It's fun, though. Yeah, it's oh, yeah, it's, it's super fun. And talking about that divine language where you talk about how uh, Mila, had, Mila had to learn and speak, it was actually spoken, spoken by Lilu, was invented by co-writer and director Luc Besson, and further refined by Mila Jovovich, who had little trouble learning and developing it, as she was already fluent in four languages. Impressive. The language had only 400 words. He and Mila held conversations and wrote letters to each other in language as practice. By the end of filming, they were able to have full conversations in this language. And director Luc Besson surprised Bruce Willis with this language because when Corbin first meets Lilu and she starts talking to her to him in her divine language, Bruce Willis did not know that there was going to be anything said, and Mila Jovovich just started speaking to him in this new, unique divine language that they invented. And his reactions are completely real. He also kissed a sleeping woman. <laughs> <laughs> Never without my permission. 
That's what I thought. I thought. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the 90s, man. <laughs> this movie also had a lawsuit behind it. So Luc Besson, an admitted comic book fan, had two famous French comic book artists in mind for this movie's visual style when he started writing the movie in high school. Jean Mobius Girard and Jean-Claude Miserius. Alejandro Jodorowsky and Jean and Jean Mobius Girard. Sorry, I'm <laughs> doing my best with these. <laughs> Alejandro Jodorowsky and Jean <laughs> Jean Mobius Girard sued Luc Besson after this movie was released, claiming that it had plagiarized their comic, The Intel. Girard sued for 13.1 million euros for unfair competition. 9 million euros in damages in interest, and 2 to 5% of net operating revenues of the movie The Fifth Element. Jodorowsky sued for 700,000 euros. The case was dismissed in 2004 on the grounds that only tiny fragments of the comic had been used, and also because Giroud had been hired by Besson to work on the movie before the allegations were made. So he helped do concept art on the movie and then made a comic book with similar concept art and then tried to sue him? I'm not sure if that's exactly the time frame of what happened, yeah. um, but that, but he was working on the movie already. Mm-hmm. I think he had already made his comics before. Uh-huh. But he, and then and but he was waiting for it to get published, maybe? Probably, yeah. something like that. Yeah. And it took seven years for the lawsuit to be thrown out. Wow, seven years of fighting. Damn. It's a lot of money. Mason was like collecting the money and residuals. Like, the you, whole, guys, like, you guys are wasting. T- How's the court proceedings going? <laughs> Y'all are wasting your money over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he made a boatload because he's a producer on this. Mason's a very successful director. Uh, I think that recently he's kind of fallen out in terms of. I mean, Valer- Valerian was just a big bomb. Unfortunately, uh, American audiences did not react to it at all, and it had very poor box office returns for its massive budget. But still. In the 90s, he was a big force even in Hollywood for a European director. It's really hard, I think, in America to make an original sci-fi film, especially especially kind of like a space adventure, and have it be successful in the United States and you know, North America because of the popularity of Star Wars, Marvel, and Disney. The brands. The, the brands yeah. just take over all sci-fi potential of stories, storytelling, so I think it's almost impossible for Nowadays, like, yeah. a major sci-fi space film to be successful that isn't already a brand property. I mean, Blade Runner 2049 was a, were not successful. It made money, but like not, $250 million, something like that? Yeah, that. but that was its budget. And that's a movie yeah. that is the original is yeah, loved. It, it had a one brand. Of the movie, best it, movies of all time. But it doesn't have like a Star Wars brand. And also... And, I think James Cameron is the only one who can still pull it off Mm -hmm. because he's pulled it off with Avatar. And I am betting that Avatar is going to be a huge return. Avatar 2? Avatar 2 is going to be massive. I'm predicting, like, I mean, it might top Avatar 1. Yeah, off the top of my head, I'm sure we're missing a few, but that's the only one I can think of, too, where just a a 21st, the last 10 years or 15 years. Last 20. Yeah, last 20. Well, there's probably a couple. Because Matrix was before 2000, so we can throw that in. But I'm talking about like space adventure. Yeah, okay, space sci-fi adventure. space adventure epic. I can't think of any. That I'm w- sure there's something we're missing, but in terms of it's it's really hard to do it nowadays. Where it was very common in the '90s and '80s to do stuff like this, you know, just shooting shots with original sci-fi ideas. Now these kind of stories seem to just go to like the Sci-Fi Channel or B movie uh, studios or, or be a series something on streaming. Like that, yeah, because yeah. there's I feel like there's been a huge influx of sci-fi TV series on streaming apps, like. Things like this, but like on a lower scale, but just being a TV series, mm-hmm. not a movie. Because like a movie like Ender's Game, great book, loved the movie. Failure. I, I thought that was going to be like a huge hit. They were you banking see on they it. Were ba- they were banking on a franchise because it's a book franchise, and the sequel, they were setting it up for sequels, which would have been really cool. Just didn't do that well, which yeah. is unfortunate, but I think the movie, I think the movie is really great. Yeah, so I think it's hard to – I think you're right. It's hard to pull off the space science fiction when it's not uh, a famous brand like Star Wars. Now, let's head on into our intermission, oh, yeah. let's do it. and then we'll get back into... We haven't even talked about Chris elements. Tucker. Oh, yeah. We're saving him. <laughs> chicken good. Chicken. <laughs> oh, chicken. Chicken good. <laughs> I, thought, I was thinking you were saying a uh, Ruby impression, and I was uh, like, what does he say that? We'll get there. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's Lilu. All right, let's head into the intermission. Before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to share us with your movie friends and family members. Use our coupon codes and become a patron today for as little as $2 at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. You get a weekly bonus episode that every patron has access to. $10, $25, and $100 tier patrons get their own access to our Discord where we do watch parties. We interact with you every day. $25 and $100 tier patrons get their own custom episode you pick the topic we do it for you 
and $100 tier patrons get their own watch party. You are an executive producer at the end of every main episode. And after three months of being in that tier, you get to come on the show for a guest segment. It's a lot of fun. Patreon allows us to do the show full-time, so thank you so much for your support. Corbin Dallas has a lot of cool tech in that apartment, but you know what would make it even better? A lawnmower 4.0 groomer from Manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for Manscaped.com. You'll get 20% off and free shipping on your entire order today. The Lawnmower 4.0 groomer is a rocket ship for your grooming needs. Has a 7,000 RPM motor, skin safe to the touch, waterproof, has a built-in light, wireless charger. You can use this thing in the shower. It is amazing. Their Boxer Briefs 2.0 are incredibly soft and comfortable as well as having all sorts of cool designs they got a little extra space down there for you for your junk to make you even more comfortable walking around all day in jeans and pants manscaped also has deodorant two-in-one shampoo conditioner body wash a weed whacker nose and ear hair trimmer and if you get their ultra premium collection you get all that as well as a bunch of other goodies briefs and a traveling shed bag head to manscaped.com use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost. That's one word at checkout. You'll get 20% off and free shipping worldwide. And our other amazing sponsor is, of course, MoviePosters.com. Use our special promo code Raiders10 at MoviePosters.com to get 10% off your order today. They have a huge selection of pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable in their poster library, as well as all sorts of options for framing, sizing, and backlighting. We also have a movie poster contest happening twice a month from MoviePosters.com. So whenever we post those, be sure to enter our poster giveaway contest from them. These are high-quality posters, super affordable. They are the number one stop for all of your poster needs. Again, head on over to MoviePosters.com and use our promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. All right, let's get into this intermission. You ready? I'm ready. Let's begin with the movie quote competition. Ready? I'm ready. My name is Alice, and I remember everything. Resident Evil. Which one? The first one. Sure about that? Yeah. It's Resident Evil Apocalypse. Damn. Which one's that? I think it's the sequel. The second one? Mm Mm-hmm. My name is Alice, and I remember everything. I think that was the last one I saw. Me too. <laughs> I love the first one. Yeah, the first one's cool. Yeah, Michelle Rodriguez is in it. It's a good cast. Yeah. Okay, here's mine. It's cool. This is a long one. Tonight, we will bar- be partaking on a liquid repast as we wind down our way up the Golden Mile, commencing with an inaugural tankard in the first post, then on to the old familiar, the famous cock, the cross hands, the good companions, the trusty servant, the two-headed dog, the mermaid, the beehive, the king's head, and the hole in the wall for a measure of the same all before the last bittersweet pint in the most fateful terminus blank. Leave a light on, good lady, for though we may return with a twinkle in our eyes, we will be, in truth, blind drunk. <laughs> Where's Gary? <laughs> <laughs> I think he's in bathroom. Oh, he's over there playing Need for Speed. <laughs> That's a great... They're, like, looking for him. He's, like, playing the... <laughs> That's a great one. He said he went to the bathroom. Yeah. He's just playing the racing game. <laughs> this is the world's end. Yeah, great one. Sean... <laughs> Simon Pegg is so good. Yeah. He's, he's... I think it's his best role. It might be his best he's performance. He's so good as Gary. He's incredible in that it's movie. It's amazing. He makes the movie. Yeah. It's his best performance, I would say. I, it's such an underrated movie. So it is. It gets a lot of hate. It only has, like, a 7 point... No, it's a 6.9 on it IMDb. It gets a lot of hate because I think the third act... I want to spoil it if anyone hasn't seen it. People don't like the third act. I love it. I think it's great. He made he made three genres with his exactly. That was the whole plan. Just the point. Genre movies. I I I love it. I the Canetto trilogy is a lot more brilliant. We we, let's do an episode on it this month. We got to do it. All right, we'll dress up for for Halloween for oh costumes too. So we'll do the let's do we're doing the Canetto trilogy in October. Who? Yeah, that's a great idea. I might maybe Hut Fuzz the outfit the the cop outfit the cop and I'll do Gary. I'll figure something or or Sean or Sean. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Yeah, I love it. We love the Cornetto trilogy. All right, moving on to guess this movie release year. Dazed and confused. Um, nineteen ninety four. Do you think you got it right? I think so. Well, it would have been a lot cooler if you did. Nineteen ninety three. Oh man, <laughs> close enough. Close enough. No, it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> 
guess this movie release here, Commando. <laughs> I love this movie so much. It's great, man. I watched the opening uh, of it just for fun, like t- a couple weeks ago. Uh-huh. But it's just him and his daughter. Yeah, and she, the opening is great. They're just like in the pool. He's like the, carrying her on a hike. Yeah, <laughs> he's just he's just so enormous, and he's yeah. with this like little. He loves being a dad. Fourteen year old girl who's like a hundred pounds, and he's like three hundred all muscle. <laughs> it actually works because then you understand why he kills two hundred dudes. <laughs> um, nineteen. Mm, let's see, nineteen ninety. It is a 1900s movie. Is it 20, 20th century? <laughs> All right. Thanks. Thanks. Appreciate that. <laughs> Could have been BC. Nineteen ninety one. Five. Ah, oh, damn. Mid nineties. I'm trying to gauge of how big he is compared to where he is at in his career. Yeah, he get he did get bigger. He went through yeah. phases of being huge, kind of not as big, but he, then being he's huge had to again. lose weight for roles because like he lost weight in, weight in Predator. Yeah, and then, and then he actually lost weight for Conan. That was his first big weight loss. And he's huge in Conan because <laughs> he couldn't sword fight because his muscles were so big. <laughs> it's true. He had to he had to cut weight because his his arms were so big he couldn't like sword fight. <laughs> Man, what a massive human! All right, uh, movie pop quiz time. What movie does Mila Jovovich appear in? With Ben Stiller and Will Ferrell. Huh. It's Zoolander. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> huh. It's Zoolander. <laughs> <laughs> it took me a second. It's obvious. She's great. <laughs> Kmart. <laughs> was she like Kmart clothing or is it like Kohl's or something? No, it's Kmart. Kmart, yeah. J.C. Penny. J.C. Penny. J.C. Penny. All right. What House of the Dragon actor has appeared in two Edgar Wright movies? House of the Dragon actor. Two Edgar Wright movies. Let's see. Is it Matt Smith or is this a trick question? Because Matt Smith is in Last Night in Soho. But is he in any... I don't think he's in any other Edgar Wright movies. Let's see. Who who else would it be? Risa Fons. No. Patty Considine. Patty Considine. Yes. <laughs> Do you know the movies? Hot Fuzz and... The world's end. Correct. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> almost, good, got, almost got you. Good here. question. Yeah. That was an excellent question, man. Matt Smith threw you off. Because he's in one. I, I figured it out, man. You got it, man. Thanks. You're wicked, you're wicked <laughs> smart. You're wicked smart. Do we got any, any haters or unsubscribes this week, Yeah, Tom? we got a couple. Who we got? <laughs> Toy Box Mafia wrote in our Return of the Jedi episode, Laser guns? Unsubscribe. <laughs> <laughs> that was Anthony, not me. <laughs> Joshua Miguel wrote in our 2017 year in film episode, did you just say the fate of the furious is the official send off to the greatest actor of all time, Paul Walker? It was furious seven unsubscribed. (laughs) (laughs) And I replied, they are all the same. Resubscribed. (laughs) And then uh, Dawson uh, would like to unsubscribe for us because we didn't put Adam West in our Batman list. Sorry, pal. Often imitated, never duplicated, and y'all stepped on him hard. Unsubscribed. <laughs> Sorry, Dawson. <laughs> we have a great five-star review from Devin1124. Hey, Devin. His title for his review is, You can act like a man! <laughs> you can act like a man! I've been listening to the podcast for about a year now. Really appreciate wow. that. When dr- I'm driving or at work, your analysis and personalities are always intriguing and have reinvigorated my passion for movies and pop culture. Not to mention the Henry Cavill and Dune <laughs> references. <laughs> Every time. Keep up the good work or I'll have to unsubscribe. Thanks, Devin. Appreciate it, pal. <laughs> <laughs> Had to get the references in. Thanks. Yeah. And uh, it's, the De- Devin's a great first name. It's just like our last name. Yeah. Um, do we have any Godfather patrons? We are caught up on our wow, Godfather Caught up on our shoutouts. Cool. Yeah. Now, on this day in film history, today is October 6th. In 1927, The Jazz Singer is released, the first film with sound, first talkie. In 1960, Stanley Kubrick's Spartacus is released. In 1987, Days of Heaven is released. In 2006, The Departed is released. In 2017, Blade Runner 2049 and The Florida Project are released. And we actually just did an episode on the year 2017 in film, going over all the great films that came out that year. Just came out in September. Go check it out if you haven't already. And happy birthday to Olivia Thurlby and Elizabeth Sue. My streaming recommendation, I'm going to keep it fantasy. This is kind of like a sci-fi fantasy movie. Labyrinth, which is on Netflix now. I also kept it sci-fi with my reference. Uh, Total Recall is on HBO Max. It's a great Arnold movie. 
speaking of Arnold. So now, gotta watch it. Let's get back into the fifth element. Go over the plot real quick and get into some more characters. So the fifth, these four stones are <laughs> like how you're parting your hair. <laughs> it's in my eyes, <laughs> my Lulu hair. You did it so casually, like it's real. It, I, I'm telling you, I might, I might do this hairstyle <laughs> if I keep growing it out. It's almost long enough. Now the plot of the film basically follows these four stones that are being sought after by the great evil and Zorg and his minions who are working for it, and also this priest father Cornelius and I like how there's like a kind of science fiction religion that this world's based around which is really interesting yeah but it's still it, Catholic because he does the sign of the cross no but it's, it's ironic because there's no men- mention to Catholicism yeah. or any religions besides yeah. this like science fiction religion yeah. but he does do this maybe it's the sign of the elements I think it's just a continuity error or like a filmmaking oh, error oh no I bet it's sign of the elements it could be the sign yeah. of the elements maybe yeah actually four yeah. one two three four where's the fifth one it's in his heart <laughs> 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 they're all looking for these stones because they're trying to defeat this great evil. Well, no, four makes sense because she has the tattoo of the four. Whatever. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's looking for these four stones. The great evil wants them to prevent himself from being destroyed, obviously. And then the priest, as well as Lila, are looking for the four stones to be able to defeat the great, great evil, which is coming every five years. The great evil has been awakened. It is starting to eat up things in space and plants and wants complete domination to destroy all life. And Corbin Dallas has been mixed up in all this because... Lilu fell into his cab when she escaped after being reconstructed in the lab, artificially as a human. And then he's kind of tied to her and intrigued by her and falls in love with her. And then also, he gets recruited by his former commander, General, to be a basically on this secret mission to save the world, to go to this place where the stones are to try to recapture the stones. Yeah, they're basically the cruise ship space shuttle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so they're all intertwined. And that's basically the second and third act of the film is going to this this casino, this hotel in space. I always think that he accidentally kills them by putting them in the freezer. Me too. But then, then you see the general like in, a half hour later, and you're like, oh, is he alive? Maybe it can be reanimated in the future. Yeah, maybe they cloned him to be, yeah. They, or, they or, definitely look dead. It's probably like a cliche joke, like if you freeze someone, you can just unfreeze them. Yeah. yeah. I like how they don't explain it. But yeah, like yeah. when he pops up later, I'm like, isn't he he's dead? dead? <laughs> <laughs> Super funny. Now... I love we get introduced to one, maybe the best character in, ti- in the entire movie, played by Chris Tucker in this movie, Ruby Road. Corbin Dallas. If you think about it, Ruby Road, he's kind of like a radio vlogger of the he's future. He's a podcaster. Kind of, yeah. yeah. He's like, he's he's like a vlogging podcaster yeah. if you like, did podcasts in real from, life. From five to seven. I, I wonder if someone's going to do that. Like That's not really a podcast I've heard of where you just like go out in the world and, and do your podcast. Well, people do that have been doing that on YouTube since YouTube started mm-hmm. with vlogging. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. That's why I called him a radio vlogger yeah. of the future. I don't think it would, I don't think that it will work as. Audio but he's a, he's not a vlogger technically because a video log is a vlog. So yeah. you have to film it. He's You're just right. he's just like an a, a radio host auger. You should try it. He's a rogger. <laughs> 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 but I love uh, Ruby Road in this movie. So funny, so much energy and charisma, and he really just brings a spark. I think that the movie needs at the perfect moment of entertainment. This new flashy Halfway character. Point. So much comedy and humor infused in the performance. Chris Tucker is magnetic as Ruby Road. He's so funny and entertaining, and I just am smiling the whole time he's on screen. Yeah, he's – and you can see how much improvisation he did. The costumes are great. The hair is ridiculous. He has, like, th- two, three different hair looks. He's so funny, and Basson used both Prince and Michael Jackson as inspiration for the character, and he actually was considering having Prince play the role. But I think that – I mean, Prince is really cool, but I don't think he has the humor that Chris Tucker has. And mm-hmm. I think he needed, like, someone to really really steal the scenes that they are in and inject a lot of energy into the film. Because this is the halfway point. It's a transitional point for the characters going from one location to the next. And then having Chris Tucker jump on screen is like a, 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 like a hit of adrenaline in and a lot of ways. And he's such a huge star at the time. You know, he's coming out with movies like Rush Hour, not to mention he was also in Jackie Brown before this – so around the same time, actually, Jackie Brown was 96, 96 97? 97, around yeah. the same time. Yeah. So he, he's starting to like have this boom in his career, and I think it was perfect timing for him to get introduced to international audiences as well. So you can probably say that like this movie helped the success of the, fr- of the Rush Hour franchise as well, for sure. And I think that his character is great for kids, because we used to die laughing. Go ben, Go ben! When we were kids, he was like the highlight of the movie, and he was so entertaining. I think that it really made kids enjoy the film because a lot of young – like we grew up watching this. All of our friends watched it. So uh, kids grew up watching this movie in the 90s and early 
2000s, and he's one of the reasons why it was so rewatchable. It's a great satire on just diva celebrities. Yeah. Zzz, zzz, zzz. <laughs> he's so dramatic too and funny, and he's just he's such a coward at times as well. But he's yeah. part of part of saving the day at the end of the at the end yeah, of the movie. Yeah, he helps. Like what he's holding the gun in his hands, like shaking. <laughs> come on, come on, what do I do? Come on, come on. I'm not made for this, man. I'm, I can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> then he actually kills him. He's like trying. He's like, oh, oh, oh I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, come on, there's one of them. Oh, oh, come, come on, there's three of them. <laughs> oh, what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> the high pitched squeal. He's always screaming. It's it's really great performance. Chris Tucker, he's such a magnetic performer, and I love yeah. every movie the guy is in. He's one of my favorite comedians of all time, and I'll watch anything that Chris Tucker's in. Yeah, I, I love when he's seducing the stewardess. <laughs> it's yeah. so funny. He makes one of them faint yeah, <laughs> just by talking yeah. to her. <laughs> it's a ridiculous character played by such a great actor, and we love Ruby Rhodes so much. Yeah, the, the walking cane is his microphone. <laughs> and every time Corbin's put on the microphone, he's like, uh, okay. What's the word of the day, my man? Thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> he gets so upset. <laughs> so Ruby Road, definitely a highlight of the film. It makes it for the entire movie, too, as yeah. part of the, the mission to save the entire world. And Basone ahead of his time, predicting the future. Exactly. But this movie also, it has some really good political messaging as well. Oh, yeah. There's a, it's a big anti-war film. Because as Lilu is learning about what's been going on in humanity the last 5,000 years, because as we figured out, she hasn't been to Earth in five, since 5,000 years. I mean, in 300 years, I'm sorry. She's, or she has She's been never been to Earth. She's never been to Earth, yeah. but their species doesn't know what's been happening on Earth for 300 years. And she goes through the internet. Still these really old computers from the 1990s. I love it. I love it. Uh, and she's going through all the images of, of war and famine and destruction and battles. And it's a it's a really moving sequence, and Mila Jovovich sells the hell out of this scene and this performance, crying on command and just giving so much emotionality non-verbally while doing this entire sequence. It's really incredible. Yeah, and then by the end of the film during the climax, she's she's questioning why should I try to save this planet when they cause so much death and destruction. It's a really moving moment. Because she was designed without love, but she needs love to be able to and to open up her weapon, the fifth element, to be able to stop the great evil. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's actually really moving. And there's there's so much gunfire in this movie. It's crazy. <laughs> it's, a, it's a ton. Yeah, there's so much gunfire. It's ridiculous. I think the guns are really cool and fun yeah. and unique. The one that Zorg has, that, I've never seen anything like that. I thought that was a really great idea where he has the gun where you shoot one shot and then every bullet after that will follow Follows that trajectory it, yeah. of that of that bullet. It's a really cool sequence to see. And then the little red button. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love Zorgan. That scene where he's on the phone with the evil and he just starts bleeding from his skull. It's great. Gary Oldman is just unbelievable. The character design is insane. Yeah. He's always limping. And what's funny is the, the there's some glaring continuity errors in this movie, which oh, yeah. are actually just fun to point out. But he has a limp on his left leg in half the movie, then in half the movie, the other half, he has he a limp on his right leg. Uh, <laughs> so the limp switches between legs, which is really funny continuity error. He's also got that weird, like, little elephant pet thing that he's, like, <laughs> stroking its neck. It's so weird. I think that he had a blast making this movie. It's Probably. Ridiculous. Yeah. It's a good villain. It's very memorable. The character design is ridiculous. And I like his death, too. Because <laughs> he stops the bomb, and then one of the one of the aliens uh, restarts the, the um, countdown from five seconds, and he's like, oh, shit. The Mangalore's Mangalari- leader who survived. He's like, I have honor. Something like that. <laughs> now, you want to hear a couple other uh, continuity errors that, that are kind of fun? I'd love to. This yeah. might be a new segment we should do with movies. That's good. Yeah, there's a bunch on IMDb. Not yeah. to point out negatively. It's just fun to see these things. It's yeah. kind of like seeing the truck in Braveheart. It, we call, it's called goofs on IMDb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and like the truck in um, Braveheart's always a fun one as well. Oh, like yeah, yeah, yeah. the pickup yeah. truck in the background now. So Zorg, the limp switches. Lilo's hand. So remember after she escapes um, the cloning facility – and she is on the side of the skyscraper, and she has her hands up in the air because the lights are on her. Yeah. Her hands are noticeably black with all grime and dirt from crawling around. Like, very, like, dirt, black dirt She's all over her She's got dirt all over, yeah. yeah. And then she jumps and lands inside Corbin Dallas's car. Her hands are now clean, and she's, uh-huh. like, clap, screaming. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's hitting on the glass. Hitting on the glass, and, like, where's all the, all the dirt everywhere? Uh-huh. So that's a continuity error. Father Cornelius is actually referring to the, the sign of the cross. So Father Vito Corno- Cornelius, what a ridiculous name. <laughs> Makes the sign of the cross before he hits Corbin Dallas over the head. He and all other priests and monks are not Christian in this movie. There is not a single reference through the entire movie about God, Jesus, and there are no signs of a cross about anywhere uh, anywhere in the movie. Also, the pyramid and the monk from 800 years previously has no reference to Christianity. 
So my guess is either that's like the sign of the four elements or it's something to help audiences understand their priests. It's a religion, basically. Yeah, yeah. that's probably it right yeah. there. You know, it's a universally recognized uh, yeah. sign. Also, the years for this movie are kind of off. So remember, it opens up in Egypt in, what, 1914, I think it is? Yeah, 1914. No, no, it's, 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 they say in 300 years. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, just, yeah. Just let me yeah, finish yeah. the statement. I was thinking that. It was so present time. It opens up in 1914 Egypt, and then on the screen it says 300 years later, but in, the, on, in, a par- in Corbin's apartment, there's something that says the date of 2020, 2263 on it, making it about 349 years later. So it's technically about 350 years almost. Not 300 years. Way to mess up, guys. I can't believe it. <laughs> so embarrassing. It's just fun little no, continuity yeah, 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 things yeah. to bring up. I'm not, I'm not a hater or anything. It's just fun. Quit drinking that haterade, man. <laughs> <laughs> but ba- back on Zorg, um, he is a terrible villain if you think about it because – Oh, he's he horrible. He never, never opens the box. never opens the cases. Yeah. Obviously, no the, one in this movie the Mandalores the bring him a, a case. And it's to me, it seems like he didn't mention the four elements or the four stones that are supposed to be inside of it. So it's not really the Mangalore's fault. Uh-huh. And then when he gets the case from the diva's apartment in the hotel, he brings it back to his ship. It's empty. Yeah. Bro, look in the box. Open it. What's in the box? What's in the box? Sword. What's in the box? I, I guess it's just because since Lilu had it, that made him feel confident that they were in there. But still, come on, bro. It just happened to you. <laughs> Open the box. But. Yeah, bad villain. But the movie's got a movie. It's got a it's, it's got, got a movie a plot. Yeah, it's plot, got a movie plot. He had that great ending. You know, you gotta you gotta figure out how to do that. And I also really like the ending sequence with the stones. They have the stones. They put them in the right place. And they're trying to figure out how do they work. How do they turn them on, so to speak? And they figure out that each element with each corresponding stone needs to have that element interact with it. And it's pretty it's pretty cool. But I, then I'm sorry. I was just gonna say, I remember as a kid always being so like anxious during that scene, yeah. like, "Oh, make it work, make it work!" And I love how the fate of the entire universe rests on a single match. And the way he lights the match will make sure that it goes out. Because, like, if you want to make sure a, a match doesn't go out, you like flip it upside down so the flame yeah, hits the entire the wood. Of the wood. Yeah. <laughs> Cinematically, it just yeah. looks better like that. Yeah. But I was like, "Oh my god, one match for the entire universe!" And all you, all all you younglings out there who maybe never haven't lit that many matches is like. There's a quite a number of matches that you'll go through to, to get one to get lit. Sometimes I mean, it depends. It can be tough some to get a match are, to Some go. matches are better than other matches. Yeah. And it's oftentimes not just the match, but like the whatever the material is on the side of the matchbox. Sometimes that's been worn out, especially if you have one left. And it can be kind of tricky to get that last one lit. It can. So and it's it, very, very fearful. If you have yeah. like a cheapy pack of matches, I would say like it's only like a 67, 60%, 70% probability that you'll hit every one yeah. on your first try. Yeah. You can miss it's hard times. Yeah. It, I couldn't tell you how many matches I've tried to lit, and they just like, oh, it just uh, well, you break light. or you snap yeah, it. Yeah, you snap it in half. And then there goes oh, the universe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a cool sequence because of the special effects. And this movie, it's holds up pretty decently special effects yeah, wise and visual effects absolutely. for coming out in 1997 and being a non-Hollywood production they did a pretty damn good job yeah it looks good I think I think they nailed this the visual effects it still you know holds up fine and I think because most of it's practical especially like the Mangalores and the aliens and the diva today that, that would all be CGI oh absolutely but I think because there's so much practical filmmaking this movie is still very watchable today and very palatable for modern audiences I'll take them with their big prosthetic heads over them being CGI'd absolutely it's just, it still works Yeah, it's kind of got like a great Star Wars Doctor Whovian feel to it very Doctor Who but yeah. with a, like a serious Doctor Who it's still this movie it holds up pretty well I still had a great time watching it I love how it ends with them having sex <laughs> the such Bluetooth. a 90s thing such a 90s with thing with like a 90s rock song yeah, yeah, yeah like a great 90s MTV hit yeah. <laughs> it ended I was like yep that's how you end a movie in the 90s it's really sweet though especially like the fairy tale tune that like the lullaby tune that's playing while he's she's basically yeah. asking for him to asking if he loves her and everything like that. So it's, it's very it's, sweet. It's a great ending. And this movie, is, it's just still really entertaining and holds up, I think. It's really fun. There's nothing like it. And it just took that genre we're so familiar with, especially nowadays, and did something completely its own. And I like how it didn't become a franchise, even though it was wildly successful, both at the box office and I'm sure its DVD rentals were insane from word of mouth. This is definitely it was, It's one of these movies where it's both a hit and a huge word of mouth hit as well. Like, we watched it a ton, a ton, and I'm just glad they never did another one. I'm glad they never made it a franchise. I'm glad it hasn't been adapted into 
an Origins TV series yet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't want Lilu, I don't Origins. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, for real. Where did she come from? How did she become the fifth element? I'm glad it hasn't been touched yet, and I hope it never is touched. Hopefully. Um, yeah, that basically wraps our episode on the fifth element. Fortunately, Anthony got his reference in where we watched this all the time when we were kids. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say they knocked it out of the park. You didn't, yeah. Didn't. Did they? He did. Yeah, yeah. Basan, Basan did a great job. Thanks for tuning in. Become a patron for as little as $2 today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Stay tuned for more spooky episodes and Halloween costumes for this entire month. Like I said, we're not only going to do horror movies. I think Cornetto Trilogy will be a lot of fun. We're also going to do episodes like The Shining versus The Exorcist for Spooky Season in October episodes. So thanks so much and get excited for those as well. Goodbye, everyone. This episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast was executive produced by our chosen one patrons. Luke Exelston, Tyler McFly, Darren Singleton, Anthony DeMeo, John A. Graz, Becca Keen, Cody Moen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Cam, and Lauren Smertz. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.